what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on the Mesh.TV podcast network. My name is Alan Jackson, and with me is Chris Fry. We are the co-founders and co-directors of the Foot Candle Film Society and the annual Foot Candle Film Festival. Chris, how are you doing today, bud? I am doing well. I'm excited to talk about movies. Uh, you and I have got the film festival that is actually coming up, so a lot of our time is being, you know, kind of put into that, but it's nice to take a break from the festival or planning for it and uh, talk, just talk about movies and I have to talk about putting on a festival for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We actually get to be the ones watching the movies instead of worrying about putting them on, on this show. And again, this is foot candle films. This is our ongoing podcast where Chris and I get together and we discuss uh, film reviews, films that we have seen recently, especially given kind of the unique time we're in, It's all going to be films that were made available directly online since the movie theaters are still closed as of the time of this recording. So we'll do a couple of movie reviews and then we'll also move into the part of the show where we have some news to discuss, some movie production news or possibly just movie rumor news. Chris, I'm going to go and throw a tease out there. I do have a soapbox today that I'm going to stand up on and talk about. Uh, Kind of this is something we throw in from time to time where Chris and I may have a it may have an opinion we want to share about something in the film world that um, we may be a little passionate about. So we're going to get our soapbox out and talk about something of note with regards to this whole idea of films premiering online. And then we'll end the show with our recommendations where Chris and I both recommend a film or a film like piece of content. (laughs) I'm going to leave it at that uh, for our recommendation, something we think might be worth checking out in your time that you have, uh, whether you're just at home uh, by choice or not, or just looking for some good entertainment while you're uh, home during these very interesting times. So Chris, we have two films we'll be reviewing in today's episode. Uh, The first up will be the latest film starring comedian Will Ferrell. It is Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. And then we'll move on to a review of the latest film by director Hirokazu Kureda. It is The Truth, starring Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche. Uh, so, Chris, I think we'll be about ready to get started then. Yep. And just before, right before we do, let me just give a quick shout out to Time Genies. Uh, their services include home organizing, realtor staging, office cleaning, residential cleaning, work and home relocation, and personal concierge service like grocery shopping, car repair, oil change, event planning. Um, they're really good folks over there. You can visit their website at timegenies.com or give them a call at 213-444-3643 to see how they can help you out. All right. Thank you to Time Genies. And with that, let's go ahead and jump into our first review which is the latest comedy premiering directly on Netflix starring Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. It is Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Ever since we were children, we've had one dream. Winning the Eurovision Song Contest. 
This is Secret. We are Fire Saga. Who wants to hear Eurovision song? All of Iceland thinks we are a joke. That's not true. And my father is ashamed of me. No, he's not. He looked me into the eyes and said, I am ashamed of you. Maybe he was drunk. He said, and you might think that I'm drunk, but I am dead sober. Idiot. Officially, Fire Saga will be representing Iceland at Eurovision this year. I hate them! Absolutely terrible. They're old, disgusting people. But we have no choice. So we're in. Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, opens with aspiring musicians Lars, played by Will Ferrell, and Sigrid, played by Rachel McAdams, being given the opportunity to represent Iceland at the world's biggest singing competition. They finally have a chance to prove that any dream worth having is a dream worth fighting for. Or do they just prove that they and this film are yaya ding-dongs? Alan, your response. (laughs) All right. Well, I was going to try to think of something clever to do in my review that had to do with something about how many more yaya ding-dongs this this film needed in it. Because... (laughs) I absolutely love that song. So I'll go ahead and go on record as saying, I think it's a genius, beautiful song. It is, All it right. Is that being said, so you're, yeah, it is great. It's a, actually, that's something, uh, you know, my family and I have now been, that's our go-to catchphrase is play Ya Ya Ding Dong. Uh, every time we like just have anything to say to each other. Um, all right. So for the people who've never seen that film, this will make no sense whatsoever, but we're going to go ahead and roll with that. Uh, Eurovision Song Contest. So I, I will admit I am a big Will Ferrell apologist. Okay. I will typically try to find something I like out of any film he does, even the ones that don't work as well. Okay. I'm one of the few people who thought Blades of Glory, the uh, ice skating uh, film he did, was actually kind of fun. I like Semi-Pro, the basketball film. I like this formula, this formula of Will Ferrell plays a someone trying to prove to the world that he can do a certain skill that you know nobody believes is possible for him to do. So it was only a matter of time to see him move into the world of competitive singing. This yeah. It's just a perfect fit, okay? Eurovision with all the pageantry and all the costumes and the big productions, it's, it's custom made for a Will Ferrell comedy concept. Sure. So as soon as I saw the concept for this, I'm like, yep, this is like checking all the Will Ferrell boxes. I'm ready to go with this. And we did a we did a trailer tapas segment where we played, we mentioned this trailer. So yeah. And you and I both excited to see this film. Sure. Okay. We'll go ahead and couch it by reminding everybody this premiered on Netflix, meaning for $7.99 a month, we got this movie included basically for free, if you really look at it that way. This is true. So that has to put a little bit of a, a filter on the review, I think. <laughs> Chris, my thing with Eurovision Song Contest, and I'll go ahead and say, I had a generally fine time with this film. Okay. But I find myself struggling with it because when I go see a really good comedy, uh, there are two types of people in my world that I could recommend comedies to based on the kind of comedy it is. Okay. You've got your zany, madcap, just bizarre humor films, which I will put other Will Ferrell movies like Anchorman into that category where they're not afraid to just go 
off the walls with the humor and the absurdity of the of the of the of the premise. So are you also a Casa de Mi Padre apologist or have you seen that one? Yeah, no, I actually like that too. I actually think that's kind of uh, interesting and fun. Then you've got the kind of comedy where okay, so basically those zany madcap comedies I would recommend to some of my friends sure. that I know like that kind of humor. Right. And then there's the comedies that are they're nice. They're simple. They're sweet. They're fun. That, but they are overall good natured, and they've got good uplifting endings. And there's that kind of comedy that's a whole different type of people. I might recommend that film to. Okay. I don't know where to recommend this film because it doesn't fall into either of those camps. It's kind of dropped right in the middle. It has its moments where it wants to be a zany, over the top comedy, and a couple of moments I do think work really well in that in that vein in the film. But then the rest of the film is very, very content being a very nice, very pleasant, um, kind of a rags to riches, kind of a a ascending stardom type of film that actually is a nice romantic film. I mean, there's actually some nice moments that I don't expect. So the film, I think, has a hard time identifying its identity of where it wants to be. And it does make it a little tough to say I completely like the film, but I will say it was a good passable uh, two hours of time of my life. How's that for a very lukewarm uh, recommendation, Chris? <laughs> well, and I think you you also for making disclaimers and couching things in certain ways. Um, you know, two hours of your life during the time that we're in, where you can't go to movie theaters, and during two hours of your life when you can't really leave the house that often, other than to go to work. You know, kind of changes things. Um. I think you and I fall in similar places with this film. Um, okay. You know, with a comedy, as we've talked in the past, number one thing is, you know, did you laugh at all? You know, if you didn't laugh at all, obviously the comedy didn't work for you because it wasn't much of a comedy. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. With this film, I did laugh some, you know, so I found it enjoyable with that. The thing that I struggled with, um, which I think I have struggled with on recent Will Ferrell movies is that I like him. I think he's funny, but I mm-hmm. feel like, you know, a lot of times it's some things are too improv because you think, okay, he's a funny guy. We don't have to really strictly script moments and things because he's just going to be funny, which he can be. But when you're looking at a two hour, three minute movie, um, there was too much of just kind of, you know, scruffiness or fat that wasn't trimmed away. I think this would be really a really really funny comedy if it was trimmed down to like you know 85 minutes 90 minutes which is a constant complaint i seem to have you know things are too long and a comedy is a long comedy is like death to me because it you know Mm -hmm. there are funny moments but a lot of times unfortunately some of those are ruined by the trailer which you know we saw we both saw um but it's not to say there aren't strengths of the film but i feel like you take Will Ferrell into something scripted like the other guys, which I think I recommended a couple of shows ago, Mm -hmm. but that like, he just really shines because he's still funny, but it's just, it has more of a story to it where this one, you know, it's just really loose and there's stuff that could really be trimmed out. There's like a karaoke party scene where like they just basically do a, a montage of a bunch of songs. And that to me gave me, bad flashbacks of trolls world tour because it was like (laughs) this isn't really forwarding anything going anywhere it's just taking up time and i want to get on to something that i find entertaining this isn't entertaining to me 
Well, and I think, again, I kind of go back to this identity crisis with the film because I really don't know if the film knows what exactly it's wanting to do. Hmm. Um, It, it, it wants to parody this Eurovision song contest, this big international, uh, well, I say international, basically European song contest. Um, It wants to parody it, but it also is playing it very, very respectful of it. So it's like, it's parodying it in small little slices, but overall it is still saying that this, it's showing a lot of reverence for it. And you could tell it's almost like tugging and pulling it. Do I make fun or do I be deferential to it? Because even the sing-along you mentioned in the middle of the film, there's nothing funny about it. I no. mean, it's not, a, it's not funny. It, it's well done. It's, it's a good musical interlude if you it's like well that shot. style of music. Like yeah. yeah. But it's very much, I mean, it's showcasing past winners of the Eurovision Song Contest, real people. And so in a way, it's like playing homage to this whole song competition. And even the performances that we see are actually really good. I mean, the actual songs for Eurovision are really good. I mean, you know, they are well, the one, of that style. The, one, the ones that are meant to be serious are good. Now, I I really like, if you, you know, I'll speak of a speak yeah. of the film. Um, Dan Stevens, who plays Fire Saga's mm. Okay, yeah, that's the only one that I think is played for absolute jokes. Well, actually, yes. there's, there's another one that's not allowed to fully, like, blossom that I wish it was. But Dan Stevens, you know, he plays a Russian singer, Alexander Lentov, and he chews up scenery like he's been fasting yeah. since the beginning of COVID-19. Like, he, <laughs> you know, start, and he does yeah. a really good job. He's not annoying it's done in different ways. Like, it's not like he's always hitting the same comedic note, you know, but he's great. There's another one and I can't even remember the song, but it's basically like, you know, most of these songs with the exception of like Dan Stevens, but you know, they are like single people singing their heart out, you know, just like a mm-hmm. type, you know, singer or whatever. But at one point they kind of cut to maybe 15 seconds of something that looks like a guar band. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, well, and they're but f- the thing is, that's an actual band. I believe that's oh, an really? actual year of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying is wow. I don't think, I think they play it because it's, it's shocking to us American audiences watching it. But I, I think that's everything we band. saw up on the stage for the most part, except for Dan Stevens right. and of course, um, fire saga, fire saga. Okay. were actual bands and performances. So huh. that's the thing where it's like, it okay. doesn't really know if it wants to play it for fun right. or play it as, as respectful. Hmm. So I think that's a little bit of an identity crisis. And then there's the fact that, yes, Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams, which we haven't even mentioned Rachel McAdams yet. I think she's really good in this. I think she's got a great comedy chops. We saw her in Game Night uh, Mm -hmm. last year, and I thought she was really funny in that too. Sure. The fact of the matter is, if you take Will Ferrell's singing out of these songs, these songs are actually pretty good (laughs) that they perform. (laughs) You know, it's not not like they're joke songs. I mean, they are really good songs that are, you know. With the exception of Ya Ya Ding Dong, which is. No, no. Ya Ya Ding Dong is an excellent song. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is an excellent song, but it's it's nothing more than a joke. I mean, it's. it's, Oh, no, no. It it was written solely to be a, hey, what would be a song that a bunch of people drunk in a bar would all want to hear and sing over and over again? Yeah. Yeah. And let's make it as sexually uh, explicit as possible. (laughs) Um, but I mean the thing is when they actually perform their songs they're good so again it's not knowing is do we want to make fun do we want to have fun with this or are we trying to tell a really good story with good performances and I think it's just struggling of what to do now 
That being said, there are a couple of moments where the film goes absurdist comedy. And I think those moments work. Unfortunately, they're so fleeting and so quick that by the time they've left that scene, they've reverted back to the, the romantic comedy uh, rags to riches story again. Uh, You've got this whole subplot with elves that (laughs) I think is really funny and I wish they would have done more with it, but I love the concept of that Sigrid, the, uh, the, 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 the girl singer, Rachel McAdams character, actually believes in elves and actually confides in the elves for because she's what from, she wants. She's from Iceland and that is kind of right. like their, their sure. culture and history kind of has this, you know, kind of, you know, this yeah. backstory kind of with mythology and with elves and stuff. So yeah, I, I like that. And that's kind of some of what you're talking about. The anchorman oddness that they just mm-hmm. kind of throw out there and either it works for you or it doesn't, but it's that absurdist stuff that really appeals to me. Yeah. <laughs> that I really love. And it was the best parts of the film, the, yeah. the elves. And then I'd also say the, uh, the, the boat explosion yeah. with a following ghost that would appear randomly. Yes. That's another element of humor that I loved yeah. so much, but then I just felt like there was nothing else to really match that. Maybe Dan Stevens performance, in his character. But outside of that, there wasn't a lot that was really that absurdist humor. It was very milk toast, very, very gentle, nice, um, uh, humor. It was still enjoyable, but it just, uh, again, it just kind of mixed up the identity of the film a little bit for me. Well, you know, the absurdist humor, it's random, it's weird, but it's the type of stuff that it's like, it does have to be written because it, it is, mm-hmm. it's not like improv. And that's where I think the strength is, is because yeah, he can, Will Ferrell can improv every now and then, but you give him stuff to play off of that's scripted. And it's really funny. Like the elves, yeah. like, you know, um, there's also it's scripted, but I really like the way it's done. You know, fire saga, when they play in Iceland, they have like a, I don't know, 12 year old drummer <laughs> that plays. Mm-hmm. With them. And his kind of yeah. lines about like, you know, oh, give up on fame or whatever that he'll tell this kid, like the responses of that kid's face and this guy, like yeah. that's scripted, but it, it seems improv, but you know, it's not. And that kind of stuff really, really, really works for me. Yeah. It's just, you, if you realize, if you look at the whole two hour running time and you realize that there were maybe four or five moments where they dip into that absurdist uh, extreme humor and the rest of the time they don't touch it. They go very, very, easy on the, on the humor. Uh, it, it, it does make for that mixed bag of how you kind of look back on this film. Sure. Um, I'll say there's a couple other things I'll just call out that I thought I liked about the film. I did think, uh, I, I like Pierce Brosnan in general. I think Pierce Brosnan is always an interesting uh, presence on screen okay. and he got to have fun playing just this very gruff fisherman, Icelandic fisherman, uh, father for uh, Lars Will Ferrell's character. And I thought that was fun. I mentioned Rachel McAdams already as being someone I thought very uh, uh, great with the humor, with the comedic timing. I think she played off of Will Ferrell extremely well. And uh, I think she actually did better in this film than Will Ferrell did as far as matching the film and matching the level of comedy that they were trying to go for. Yeah, Um, I agree. There were times I felt like Will Ferrell was a little bit in a different film trying to do his Will Ferrell thing. And it wasn't matching what the rest of the characters were all doing. Um, and then, um, I'll also say too, I mentioned the songs already, but the song they sing at the end, uh, Husselvik, which is about their hometown. Okay. It's a really good song. Um, (laughs) okay. And think about it this way, Chris. Okay. 
the limited number of options that we may have for best original songs at the Oscars this year. You're not going to lobby for Yaya Ding Dong. Oh, no, no, I'm totally going to lobby for (laughs) Yaya Ding Dong, but I'm trying to be realistic about what might actually get nominated. I actually think there's a chance of it could be nominated as a best original song because it is really that good. Um, Anyway. That's the one that she sings in her original Icelandic for some of this. Right. It's the very closing, big ending song. And uh, again, I think it's a good song. So that's another challenge is that when their music is really good, it's kind of hard to look at them as jokes which is what the film wants you to believe that the two of them Firestalker are jokes, but yet you hear their music. I'm like, no, their music's actually pretty good. It's just as good as any of the other Eurovision stuff I was hearing up on stage. So why does everybody treat them like they're just these horrible, horrible performers when they're not? Right. So again, the, the film just wrestles with that. It's like, do we want to show them being really good musicians with good songs and showing Eurovision as a very prestigious event? Or do we want to make fun of them and everybody else around them? And they never can quite decide where they want to go. So it does make for a mixed bag. Um, If I had paid $10 at the movie theater, I would have been maybe a little more disappointed walking away from the film uh, for basically for free on Netflix on a Sunday morning. Uh, Yeah, sure. It was fun. So I, uh, I had, I had a good time with it. So. Okay. Yeah. I, I had an okay time with it. I won't sing its praises, but have some funny stuff. Okay, time. It was, uh, <laughs> if you are a Will Ferrell's Ferrell completist, and this is like your thing as you, you watch Will Ferrell movies, there will be enough moments on here, I think, to uh, to make it worth your while. Sure. Uh, if you're not generally a Will Ferrell fan, and the idea of listening to a lot of pop music uh, from around uh, Europe doesn't appeal to you, you're probably not going to get a lot out of this film that's kind of find enjoyable, but um. I think it's I think it's a, a passable time for a couple of hours. It's not it's not top tier Will Ferrell, but it's not like in the gutter either. It's you know it's no, not in between. No, it's definitely not it's definitely not bottom bottom feeding uh, Will Ferrell. This is right. this is a middle ground. Nice, what do you call it? A nice mediocre Mil- Will Ferrell movie. How's <laughs> yeah. that? Okay. Um, and I will say, ya ya ding dong. Every film going out now should have a yaga ding dong somewhere on the soundtrack. Nice. That's kind of my rule going forward, I believe. One, two, three, four. When I feel your gentle touch and things are going our way I will just say that song is on my Apple music uh, library now and has been played several times in my house in the last week. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is Eurovision song contest. The story of fire saga. Chris and I are both saying it's, it's okay. It's fine. It's, it's a, it's a passable form of entertainment for two hours. 
And uh, there are enough moments in there to chuckle and laugh at, but uh, don't go in expecting another Will Ferrell classic because it's it's not up to that level. So Chris, let's go ahead and switch gears and talk about a very completely different film. Uh, we're going to talk about the latest film from director Hirokazu Koreeda. It is The Truth. At Castle. It does. Yes, even though there's a prison just behind it. Chris, in the film The Truth, we have the story of a, a little little rocky reunion between a, a daughter who happens to be a script writer played by uh, Miss uh, Juliette Binoche, starring as Lumiere. Uh, meeting together with her famous mother and actress, uh, Fabienne, who's played by uh, classic actress uh, Catherine Deneuve. Uh, they are meeting in the backdrop of, uh, in France, uh, while Fabienne, the, the mother, has had an autobiographical book just published, and that has brought now her daughter and her daughter's uh, husband or, and uh, child to come and stay with, with uh, Catherine Deneuve's character for a little while. Uh, it is a film about um, a patchy relationship between a mother and daughter, but it also has a lot to do about acting. And I think that really kind of speaks to the title of the film, The Truth, as the film does a lot of exploring about what is true, what is real in relationships, and what are the fact that all these people that we meet have something to do with show business and Hollywood and acting and writing. Uh, does ask a lot of questions about, you know, how important is the truth when it comes to family relationships? We also have in this film, Ethan Hawke playing the husband role as a supporting actor. Um, Chris, I'm really curious, you know, we, we have reviewed another film by this director, by uh, Hirokazu Kureda, uh That was Shoplifters, I believe maybe a couple of years ago, if yeah. I remember correctly, mm-hmm. uh, that we actually showed as a candle film screening and we actually reviewed with our audience. So this is the the latest film from that same director. We're not as versed in a lot of his other work, although I think you've maybe seen one other film of his. So I'm really curious to see, you know, this film, a very uh, low-key, small, dramatic film. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on it and how it worked for you. And does it have any desire for you now to go out and seek out any more of of, uh, this director's work? So, you know, he seems to be the other film that I've seen was uh, Like Father, Like Son, which you can tell from the title, uh, talks about family dynamics. And, you know, shoplifters talked about a makeshift family and their dynamics. And this one, again, returns to the well of family dynamics. It seems to be something that Kareda is interested in. Father, Like Son was, you know, a certain... I mean, probably middle class, I think, if I remember correctly, family. Shoplifters was obviously people that were struggling economically, you know, lower class. And then here with Truth, we have the celebrity class. So Mm -hmm. um, it was interesting to me because he's taken different takes on examining family dynamics. So that alone, it's like, okay, this seems to be what he's really interested in. Um, And I liked the film overall. I thought it was interesting to see how it compared with the other films. and. There's a film, there's a line in the film that um, Fabienne is talking to Lumiere and she says, you know, their tension in their relationship, you see it from the very get go. It's there the entire film and they're just, you know, it's very contentious relationship. 
the daughter basically tells the mom when she first gets there, she reads the book because she didn't even know it had been published yet. And she's like, yeah, this is garbage. <laughs> you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're basically lying and telling people what they want to hear about who you are. And Fabian looks at her and she says this. I actually wrote it down because I, I love the quote. She said, I prefer to have been a bad mother, a bad friend and a good actress. You may not forgive mm-hmm. me, but the public does. And that was like, wow. And like, you know, yeah. Lumiere's face after she says that was just like one of like stunned. But, you know, they're both highly intelligent ladies. But, you know, it's just like you can tell there's just such such tension. Um, so I, I appreciated that. And, you know, the fact if this had been if the mom had just been like a CEO of a company and her daughter had just been somebody else well to do probably wouldn't have interested me that much but the fact that it's acting mm-hmm. and they show this film which we can get into what the film that she was shooting at the time that her daughter goes to visit her that whole story and kind of how that echoes back on the relationship between the daughter and mother you know it's just i don't know there there's several layers to it which i i appreciate so sure well i, I generally like the film too um, I thought it was good. I, I still think I like shoplifters better. So it didn't work for me quite as well as shoplifters did. But uh, I do think for a very, I mean, it's a very simple film with a very a relatively small cast and fairly simple premise. But like you said, there are a lot of levels at play here. Um, I think this is a film you really, you really check out just for the acting. I mean, I do think uh, Catherine Deneuve and, and Juliette Binoche, basically the two of them, carry the film oh, and not to say anything negative about Ethan Hawke, but he, I'm not used to seeing Ethan Hawke in a truly supporting role, but that's truly what he was. Sure. This is really a mother daughter relationship. And um, I, I thought they were both really good. I think it was uh, it's worth watching for that. You know, and to see what I see is a, a much more realistic depiction of a family, especially a family that's in show business that makes a living off of, being someone else or lying about who you are in a way to, to make a living. And the fact that both of them are in that role, the daughter is a scriptwriter, not an actress and the mother's an actress, but yet they both have a, a story between them about another actress that kind of helps carry a lot of the story along throughout the film too. Sure. It's a, uh, it's definitely an interesting perspective on that. And um, so I did find a lot to like out of it. Um, something like you, there was a, there was a line or a scene, I think that really kind of mine came late in the film. Okay. I will admit the first half of the film, I'm struggling to kind of grab onto what it is I'm, I'm, I'm getting from this film, but there is a moment late in the film, um, where the, the daughter Lumiere, um, basically scripts her, her daughter to say something yes. to the grandmother. Yes. And at that point, when that happens, that's when the movie kind of all came together for me and I really got a lot out of it. So it's uh it, it's definitely a couple of those moments, the one you mentioned and the one at the end, I think nice bookends to the film that really kind of help ex- illustrate what it is we're, we're getting from this story. So. You, you get to see, and it's unexpected how it comes about, but you get to see how good a scriptwriter Lumiere probably is because she takes things and can mm-hmm. construct them. And you're like, wow. And you see throughout the film how, of course, you know, Catherine Deneuve's character, you can tell she has been this monumental presence because other actresses that are in the film that she's making, which the film she's making is a sci-fi film and try to follow, you know, it, it, how it reflects the relationship is cool. And let me try to briefly explain what the sci-fi film is about, because it's kind of complicated, 
but it centers around a relationship between a mother and a daughter. The mother has to go into space because she is dying, and in space, the way she's going to be in space, she will not age. Meanwhile, her daughter that she leaves behind does, of course, age. So Fabienne, Catherine Deneuve, plays the daughter when she is like 70 years old, and the mother comes back to see her, and, you know, now the mother is like really young. And so it's this complex thing about, you know, why you made the choices that you made. And it just perfectly mirrors, you know, Juliette Binoche's character and Catherine Deneuve, the mother-daughter relationship on that side that's been happening in real life. The choices they have made, one being an actress and, you know, how she worked with her career and maybe made some choices that the daughter did not agree with or thought led to certain unfortunate events. Like there's just so much there. And I can see, you know, this film, there's, there's I guess there is some shouting, but, but there's not, you know, it is kind of a slow burn. And this will be an example yeah. where I go against what I'm normally complaining about. It's an hour and 46 minutes. There are not a lot of explosions. There are not a lot of explosive scenes. There is a lot of dialogue, not a lot of action. But for me, I was engaged the entire time. Maybe it was because it was about filmmaking, and that's something I, you know, am very interested mm-hmm. in. But it kept my attention, and I think it was, you know, like you've said, the writing, or you were commenting on the acting, but also the writing and the directing for me just really made it really, really worthwhile. Yeah. No, I, I generally enjoyed the film, appreciated the film. Uh, I think I think this director, I think Kareda, uh, definitely has his handle on what makes a family and what role does truth play in a family dynamics? Because even his last film, Shoplifters, it was a makeshift family. It was a family that was not truly related by blood, but they had kind of formed a family and posing as a family to exist in society. So basically they were living a lie to exist where this is a family that (laughs) lying is part of their profession. I mean, if you look at acting and writing for film in that way, that is what they all know. And uh, I do think the Ethan Hawke character, the, the, the husband, not a big role, but I think it was kind of interesting to see that here was someone that the grandmother has a very, uh, well, Catherine Deneuve's character has a very specific view oh, of him as an actor right. and kind of how that caused their relationship to evolve throughout the film. But yet you see him as kind of the washed up TV actor who hasn't quite given up on this idea of having a big starring role, but I think everybody around him knows that's not going to happen anytime soon. Sure. And, um, it's just, it's interesting dynamics. It's like the most, it's one of the more realistic depictions of a Hollywood family that you would expect to see the grand matriarch actress, the daughter who's still in the family, still in the, in the business, but not quite at the level and not with the same um, um, public persona that her mother has. And then she married a, a man who is trying desperately wanting to be the big actor and never quite made it. So um it's just an interesting dynamic between the three of them. Well, and it's something that, you know, sometimes like we'd talked about with Eurovision comparing the two movies with that, we felt like, you know, it was kind of a shame because maybe Rachel McAdams needed a little bit more material to work for, but she was up to the task, but didn't get it. And you kind of felt like she was slighted with this film. You know, Ethan Hawke is not underwritten. He's the perfect person to be there. He delivers the performance and there could be a, an entire separate film about his perception 
of the events that he's seeing. And you could just follow him around mm-hmm. and kind of be inside his head about how, you know, they don't, they don't give you that, but it's not, I didn't feel like he was slight. I felt like he was, he was perfect. He contributed perfectly and it really worked within the film. And it did, wasn't distracting that Ethan Hawke wasn't doing more. It was like perfectly done, perfectly balanced. There was one other person that plays kind of a, yeah. not a pivotal role, but he's a background role, but you can see, his role just reveals a lot about Fabian's part and it's her longtime assistant and his name was Luke. I don't know the actor's name, but um, he leaves Fabian's employee shortly after the biography comes out and he confides to Lumiere. It's because she didn't mention me in the autobiography. She just totally glossed over me. So he's like, I'm out. You know? <laughs> you know? And that just, you know, there again, he's, he's a background character and he leaves, but his performance and the way that kind of informs the relationship, you know, it's just, okay, this is really, really well written. So. Yeah. No, I, I think there's a lot to like from the truth. Granted, as you mentioned, it is a very uh, low key film. It's, it's, it's a lot of very dialogue heavy, but also I think extremely well written. So, um, and I think the acting performances are really strong. Um, so I, I, I can recommend the truth. I think it's a, I think it's a good film and it, it does cause me to be a little more curious about some of the other work that Kareda has done. You've seen the film like father, like son, which is one that right. I have not caught up with, but probably one of his better known films along with, with shoplifters, as far as American audiences go. Sure. And uh, how does this kind of compare to you with you for the, between those other two films you've seen? Yeah. You know, I probably liked it better than like father, like son, and it's probably below shoplifters. Um, but I still, yeah. I like all three. And I'll say too, this I believe was his first film that was not in his native language because it was a mixture of Mm -hmm. French and English. And so for it to be his first film stepping outside, you know, using his native language of, I thought that was pretty, pretty impressive. So I'm I'm forward to see what he does. His next film will be, if he'll continue the whole family dynamics investigation or whether he'll just, you know, go totally outside of his comfort zone and do a comedy who knows but uh think of- or maybe he'll make the sci-fi film that they were talking about oh, in this film man that would be <laughs> matter. and i would i would totally be on board with that <laughs> yeah, yeah sure well, that'd be interesting yeah all right well the truth uh by director hirokazu kareda uh starring katherine devenu uh, katherine deneuve and juliette binoche and also ethan hawk uh, it did go directly to online, so you can actually rent it or purchase it on Amazon, on Apple, I, Apple TV, any of the other services that are available. And it is one that Chris and I both recommend. I feel like it's a good, strong film and uh, worth checking out. So, Chris, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have a couple of movie news items, and then we've also got a soapbox that I'm going to step on and shout out from a, from a little bit. And then we're going to end the show with our recommendations. Uh, So there's still a lot to listen to. Everybody stay tuned. We'll be back with Foot Candle Films here in just a moment. This podcast is sponsored by Jackson Creative, a custom communication agency located in downtown Hickory, North Carolina, specializing in online content creation. To learn more, visit thejacksoncreative.com. Jackson Creative, we tell your story. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on the Mesh.tv. Alan Jackson and Chris Fry with you. We just finished recapping our reviews of two films earlier in the show. We talked about the film Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. Both of us giving a passable 
recommendation to that. And then we followed up with the film The Truth, starring uh, Juliette Binoche and Catherine Deneuve, which we both really liked and are willing to recommend, saying it's a good film to check out. So with that, Chris, we're going to move into the other part of our show where we are not reviewing films, but we're talking about films that may be coming down the road, either in production or maybe even just rumors at this point. I think you've got a couple of those to share with us, if I'm not correct uh, here, Chris. So I'm going to just turn it over to you and let you walk us through the first one. Okay. So Tarantino, we all know who that is, Mr. Quentin Tarantino. Quentin. I assume you're talking Quentin Tarantino, yes. right? Yes, that one. That Tarantino. Okay. Gotcha. Um, Understood. He is rumored, you know, he's always said, I'm going to do 10 films. So he did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In theory, he's only going to make one more film. Well, rumors have started to circulate that he might consider Kill Bill Volume 3. Supposedly, he has been kicking around ideas with Uma Thurman or seeing if she's willing to reprise her role. Well, recently, there again, this is all, you know, rumor speculation, but Vivica A. Fox, who plays Vernita Green in the Kill Bill movies, you know, she gets taken out, spoiler, <laughs> by uh, Uma Thurman's character. Well, the film is at least, what, 15 years old? Right. So, so, I mean, I think we're okay, okay. to spoil it at this yeah. point. <laughs> so she gets taken out by uh, the bride, the character played by Uma Thurman. Well, you see Vernita Green's daughter, And one of the plot threads that could be brought up in Kill Bill 3 is to have this daughter seek revenge against the bride for killing her mom. Well, Vivica A. Fox has recently kind of been on Twitter and who knows where else, but she has been just, you know, drum beating the name of Zendaya to be cast for Vernita Green's daughter. And Zendaya, for those, you know, who may not know her right off the hand, she played in, uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. She has an HBO show called Euphoria that she's in. Um, Alan actually made me aware off mic that she was also in The Greatest Showman that had um, a musical that had Zac Efron and uh, Wolverine, whatever his name is. Hugh Jackman. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wolverine was in uh, The Greatest Showman, which neither of us have seen that film. By if the way. Wolverine, if Hugh Jackman had been Wolverine in The Greatest Showman, I probably would have seen it because that would have been in a very amusing com- or, you know, combination. But, a very different type of movie. Yeah. Yes. But getting back, Alan, how do you feel about a Kill Bill 3 and how would you feel about Zendaya being cast in it? Well, let me just go on record saying I don't buy any of it. Ah, so, um, Alan said, I'm someone who oh. I'm someone who got a little spoiled with all the rumors that, oh, Quentin Tarantino was going to make a James Bond film and everybody's talking all about that. Oh, Quentin Tarantino is going to make a Star Trek film. And then everybody started talking about all that. Um, I'm not buying it. I just don't think it's going to happen. But would I like to see a Kill Bill Volume 3? Sure. I Kill Bill Volume 1 is probably my second favorite Tarantino film and one of my top films of the last you know couple decades. Okay. Um, volume 2, I liked, but I did feel like Volume 1 was much, much stronger. Um but I'm still game for a volume three. I just don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I love the concept. I love the idea, but man, I just don't see it. And I also don't buy that Tarantino is only going to make 10 films either. I just don't, I don't believe it. Sure. I think he's going to release a 10th film and then everybody's going to say, Oh, that's it. And then how big is the marketing push to say, you know what? Tarantino's back and he's decided to make an 11th film. 
and everybody goes crazy about it. So after he has all, I'm just the stuff from without a time in Hollywood. He has all the good vibes he got from that. You know, people were really high on that film. So for him to only do one more film and be out, you're not buying. I guess I'm probably not buying that either. And I'm also not seeing him going back to a story, you know, even though Kill Bill volume one and two were two separate films, they were designed as a single film. You know, he's been very vocal about saying he designed that as a single film. It just got broken into two films. I just don't see him going back to the well to a, previously done story for any reason but again i i don't know it's been a long time since quentin and i've really sat down and talked so i maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe uh maybe he is thinking about this but i'm just not buying it but that being said would if if he were to come out tomorrow and say that that is truly what he's going to do now i'm totally on board i'm ready let's let's give it a shot and see what happens here's the here's the thing i would be on board um because it would step away from the alternate take on history that he had with Inglorious Bastards and with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and to a certain degree, I guess also Django Unchained. So it would kind of step away from that alternate history take. And so, and you know, if he was only going to make 10 films and he decided to, for once in his career, kind of return to a familiar well, you know, and to take that slant of it was continuing the revenge idea and have it be the daughter. Like, I don't know. I think there's enough there. Um, I'd be excited to see it, but I, I, I agree with you. I think it's probably nothing, <laughs> which is a shame. But it- yeah. I think it's, I think it's, I, unfortunately, I think it's fanboy speculation online and somebody got the idea circulated and maybe it was discussed in a conversation at one point with Tarantino and Uma Thurman, but right. A lot of, a lot of ideas get kicked around sure. that don't ever go anywhere. So, yeah. all right. Well, Chris, what have you got for, you got a second one, I, I believe. Did. I have one more. So this okay. is an actual film that is going to be made, um, you know, whenever they can get started shooting again. But um, you and I both reviewed The Invisible Man, which was done by Lee Winnell. And we both mm-hmm. liked it, liked Elizabeth Moss's mm-hmm. performance in it. It's kind of a, I guess you could say, soft relaunch of the Universal's dark universe that never really came to be after the mummy with Tom Cruise crashed and burned, which Alan has seen yes. and actually reviewed semi-favorably on Letterboxd, by the way. Well, okay. Semi-favorable is a strong term. I reviewed more favorable than the consensus of people online did. Gotcha. Okay. But I'm still not saying it's a good movie. Okay. I'm just, uh, yeah. So there he has in, been in talks to direct Wolfman that is supposed to maybe be starring one Ryan Gosling with Bloomhouse as the production company. And rumors are that the film will be kind of a Nightcrawler-esque, which not the, not the X-Men Nightcrawler, but the X, uh, the Mm -hmm. Nightcrawler that was Jake Gyllenhaal and kind of his TV reporter and kind of like a dark slant on, you know, media news gathering. It'll kind of be a Nightcrawler-esque take on the tale of Wolfman with Ryan Gosling's yeah. leaving Wolfman. Alan, how do you feel about this? I am all on board with this. Okay. That's great. Um, I, I did like the invisible man. I, I, I like the modern take on the story. I like this idea of taking the classic universal monster characters and putting them in a very modern setting and also thinking a little bit more outside the box of how they're presented you know, again, the Invisible Man. If you watch the original uh, classic version, I mean, the Invisible Man was the bad guy. He was a bad person. He did bad things, and 
I, I like the fact that they kind of return to that a little bit with the newer Invisible Man because we have seen some versions of it where it's like a tragic hero type of role. And I think to go ahead and say, no, these people are monsters for lack of a better term. Sure. And to put it in a modern sense and let's show their impact on somebody else. I don't know if they'll go that route of making Ryan Gosling the bad guy or if he will be more of a victim of circumstance. I'm not sure. But uh, I do think Ryan Gosling's a really good actor. So I'm game to see what he can pull off. And Lee Winnell already showed she she has some good chops for directing such fair it might be, with the invisible. I think it's a he. I think it's. Oh, is it? I'm sorry. Yeah. So I think it is a, a gentleman, not a lady. Oh, good. Thanks for correcting me sure. on that. So, um, so obviously some good, some good act- directing chops there and can do something interesting with the material. So I'm all for it. I'm ready to see what, what happens here. I, you know, in dark universe in general, you were kind of excited about them maybe trying to make dark universe films. Maybe. I had the dark universe t-shirt already on. I was like, <laughs> ready to go man dark universe was going to be great i i have to say like you know i'm i was kind of i'm you know worn out on the avengers i was worn out on x-men i kind of and you know justice league all that kind of stuff i tend to like independent films better standalone films if they're going to do the dark universe but keep them all independent of one another i think i could possibly be on board this is the second you know we have a wolfman Okay, cool. If they end up trying to do a newer version of the Mummy, you know, okay, or a Dracula, you know, I might, I might be interested. I will say, the Wolf. I don't think I've seen a version of, you know, a werewolf because I'm thinking of Jack Nicholson's Wolf, which I wasn't really that fond of, really. So I don't think I've seen a take on the Wolfman or the werewolf story that I'm really interested in. So maybe this, maybe this will be the one. So. I, I was a fan of the Jack Nicholson wolf back in the, I believe, late 80s, early 90s, whenever that came out. Okay. I know there was one that uh, Benicio Del Toro da, did also that I never saw. Um, I think the story could be really good in a modern day setting, but uh, I'm, I'm anxious to see kind of a, a an interesting take on that for sure. Okay. Uh, I, again, I think Ryan, uh, Ryan Gosling typically signs on for good projects. Um, he does. So I'm anxious to see if he is, if he actually does this, I think that's a good uh, recommendation right away that uh, there's something good script wise going on there. So I'd be anxious to see what happens with it. Sure. So Alan, you tease, you right. have a soapbox. So what, what would that be? I do. This is a, a part in the show that we do from time to time that we call our soapbox where, you know, there's something going on in the film community, the film world in general, that either we just have very strong opinions about and we want to kind of have a, a moment to voice them. Uh, whether, Chris, you agree with me or not on this. Okay. So I'm getting the soapbox out. I'm going to stand up on it and get ready to shout. <laughs> we alluded to this a little bit during our reviews. Okay, but here's here's where I want to go with this discussion. Okay. We have now been in a situation where since March, um, movie theaters have been closed. Mm-hmm. So that is going on, what, four months, I believe, a third of the year gone so far. Um, Indications are we don't really expect to see theaters open anytime very, very soon. Uh, Christopher Nolan Uh, is single-handedly going to make theaters open in August for Tenet, I think. Well, he said that also in mid-July, but that got pushed back again, too. So anyway, 
we're going to at least look at another month or so before they're open, if not longer, depending on how things go. Right. So that tells a lot of these studios, as we talked about before in our news items, to kind of reshuffle their schedule. Some of them are just punting and saying, we're just going to wait and release our film in the winter. Some say we're just going to punt it a whole year. But then other films, they say, well, no, look, we can go ahead and release it online. You know, maybe we're going to take a hit on exposure. We might take a hit on, uh, you know, how many people actually get to see it or money involved. But it seems like a better bet to go ahead and release it online than to keep uh, kicking it down the road. Sure. So we have had some films release online and we have talked about several of these films on our show, Chris, we've reviewed many of these films that are available online. The two films we reviewed today, Eurovision song contest and the truth were both films that were expected to go online or I'm sorry, expected to go to theaters when they were released. And both of them had to be put online instead. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's a little bit of an effect going on though, right now with critics and with maybe the film going community as a whole. Okay to give these films that are releasing online, elevate their status a bit more um, simply because our options are so much more limited on films and forms of entertainment. We may have available to us original entertainment case in point. There is a film that was released on Hulu, which again, full streaming. It was just dropped on. If you're a Hulu subscriber, you get to watch this film for free, basically called Palm Springs. Now it stars Andy, Andy Samberg, who I'm a big fan of. I, I think he's really funny and also has a uh, Kristen Milody uh, co-starring with him. This film is a comedy romance. It's a, I'm not going to spoil too much about it, but it does have a little bit of a science fiction element to it. It came out this past weekend and I'll tell you on Twitter, on everywhere else you go film related, this film is getting the ravest reviews. I've seen out of you know four and five star reviews, I've seen people saying it's one of the best films they've seen in the past year. Okay. Sure. Now, you and I have both seen this film. We have. We're not really I'll go in record sure, saying, yeah. Yeah. I, I will go on record saying I did enjoy this film. I thought it was a very fun film. I liked the premise. I liked the actors. I, I thought it was great. I had a good time with the film. Mm-hmm. Is it the best film I've seen in, in a year? No, it's not. Um, so my question is, my soapbox on this, Chris, is, is do we feel like that there's a little bit of this halo effect going on with films being released online where, because we have so many fewer options of original content and we don't get that same movie going experience that now we can watch a streaming film online like Eurovision, like the Will Ferrell one Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, it was, it was okay. It was pretty fun. We had a good time with it. Where if we had gone to see it in a movie theater given the price and given all the, the, the mechanics you go through to go to a movie theater, would we have felt the same way coming out of the movie theater for that film? So that's my question about Palm Springs too. Are we experiencing a halo effect for streaming films because we're finding ourselves looking for anything we can grab a hold of and say, this is really, really good entertainment. Thoughts, Chris, because I, I do feel like this is maybe a little bit at play right now. Yeah, I think it, I think that's a fair soapbox to be on, to be, um, I, I, I think there probably is a little bit of it just because, you know, if you actually, if you take the two films, Palm Springs and Eurovision, I'm going to sway more towards Eurovision because it's trying to do something. Yeah, basically it's a, it's a take on Groundhog Day, which I just recently recommended on the podcast. Um, so it's not like an idea like that has never been done before. No, it has, but it kind of 
in the preview that you see for Palm Springs, it kind of tells you this is what we're trying to do. And it was still innovative enough. It kind of wrote itself into a corner, but was still creative enough with how it was doing it that I liked it and I appreciated it. So am I a five-star person? I think it's like the best film I've seen in years. Well, no. (laughs) But I am more appreciative of a comedy that tries something a little harder than Eurovision, for example, if that makes sense. But I can see how, you know, because it was released digitally, some people are so striving for an interesting comedy that's not just run of the mill, you know? So yeah, maybe they get a little overhyped with things. I could see that. Yeah. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying any of this to say that it's wrong because I, I, I get it. I mean, where we used to be having two or three new films coming out in movie theaters, at least every single Friday, sure. along with some films that would go straight to online. So we had a plethora of things to work through and you go to the movie theater and sometimes you see a really great film. Sometimes you see a film that's not so good and you feel really cheated on it. We are seeing our options get streamlined a little bit. You know, for example, this past Friday, mm-hmm. two films, two kind of bigger high profile films came out exclusively online. Sure. Palm Springs that we just mentioned on Hulu mm-hmm. and then the film uh, Greyhound, which was an Apple TV movie with Tom Hanks came out on Apple TV. And, you know, I've seen even the reviews for Greyhound, which, you know, the t- uh, the critics I, I follow and read are saying, yeah, it was fine. It was good. It was a good dad action movie, uh, naval submarine movie. And again, would they feel that same way if you had gone through the same theatrical experience you normally would with this when it's competing for four or five other films in the, in the multiplex for attention that weekend? Um, I just don't know. And again, it's it's a it's a scenario we'll never really probably know the true answer of because, you know, we 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 can't live that alternative world where the movie theaters continued like normal and we can compare and contrast and see. Sure, our brains are now geared to really want to find good sources of entertainment. So I think we're willing to be very very, um, be not as critical as maybe we would have in a different situation. Sure, I guess that's where I'm going with this. Now, I'm going to say something blasphemous. Okay. I love that. that. Chris, you're probably not going to, uh, you're probably going to give me grief for, okay. and that's fine. And if you have any comments on this, alan at footcandle.org is the email address you can use to send me a note. Listen, I love the play Hamilton. Ah. I think it's wonderful. Okay. And I did watch a good part of the movie film experience and and you've seen a live performance of it you got to see it yes i have seen i had seen the live performance seeing the the filmed version of it on disney plus is great but i think there may be a little bit that same everybody was just bottled up wanting to see this and wanting to see to for it to get quite the level of acclaim it's getting online as well again i'm not saying i mean believe me i think hamilton's a wonderful work of art sure I just, uh, I think people were just so hungry for something like this that they could have, re- they could have released a, a version of Hamilton shot with a camcorder, a single camcorder in the middle of the stage, just showcasing the stage. And I think people would still go nuts over it. So um, I think there's a little bit at play with that too. So um, As much as I like Hamilton and I, I do, my daughter got me into it. I listened to the music nonstop. We got to see a performance of it. It was great. Um, but I'll agree. Um, 
I think, you know, the release of it online, we mentioned it in news items, you know, that they decided to release it a year early. It was going to go to theaters first. I do think maybe it's a shame that, and I understand why they did it, because they could get more eyeballs on Disney Plus and gives more money to Disney and everything. I think it's a shame that it didn't come to theater, wasn't able to come to theaters first, because being able to see it on a big screen, yeah, I think would have made it much more dynamic. Um, I still watched, I actually watched the whole thing on July 4th. <laughs> um, oh, nice. So yeah, yeah. It, it, it was nice. But uh, yeah, it's just nothing takes away the experience of when you're fortunate enough to have been able to see it live. And when you're comparing it to other films that have taken, like filmed musicals and stuff, you just felt like, you know, they didn't, weren't able to make like a true film of the play, if that makes sense, because they were, you know, locked into trying to communicate an exact version of the play, you know, whereas Lin-Manuel is going to come out, which was delayed from this year, a filmed version of In the Heights. And it's not just a filmed version of the play. Mm -hmm. It's an actual recreation, you know, musical with like, you know, people walking around actual real streets and all that kind of stuff. So Hamilton, I realized would have been difficult, still worth seeing, especially if you haven't been able to see the actual play and you do get to see the original cast, but I, I agree with you. I think it, it was kind of, you know, bottled up anticipation that maybe is a little overhyped. So, Well, it's almost like the lack of a movie going experience, Chris, I think is going to robs us of two extreme reactions to films. I think a theatrical experience makes a good film possibly greater. Sure. Okay. I think the Hamilton movie is an example of that. I think that would have been a much, much more impressive experience in a theater environment. Sure. And I think it makes the films that are not as strong less desirable mm -hmm. if you watch them in a movie theater experience because you're then doing the mental calculations of the time and money and energy I put in to come see this and I didn't get what I wanted in return. Right. What streaming online does is kind of flatten that all out and say, look, as long as it's pretty good entertainment that you can get with the click of a remote control button, we're going to be okay with it. And it doesn't give us those two extremes that we had before. So that's, uh, that's what I feel like is happening right now. And I think uh, I, for one, am anxious when we can get the world back to a good spot to where movie theaters can open and we have that experience again, if they can open, um, you know, then I look forward to that. And I think that's uh, that's going to kind of set the, the film going world right once again. But in the meantime, at least we do have good, solid entertainment coming to our streaming services. And again, I think Palm Springs was really good, solid entertainment. Uh, I thought the Hamilton film was good, solid entertainment. But could they have been better or maybe less perceived quite as extreme if we if we didn't have to be forced to watch them on our home TV sets? in a streaming environment. So, all right, Chris, I'm done with my soapbox then. It wasn't that bad. I didn't get too fiery about it. So it was, it was okay. My, my feelings are, you know, not as passionate as maybe some other things we've had soapboxes about in the past. But with that, Chris, let's go ahead and move into the last bit of our show, which is where you and I both have a recommendation of a film or film like content that we want to recommend to our listeners as something to check out. If you are looking for some of that good middle of the road content to enjoy on your, your home TV set, we, uh, we hope to have a couple of suggestions for you. So Chris, why don't you start us off? What is your recommendation for this episode? So I'm going to recommend a film that I feel like it was released theatrically in 2019 and it kind of came and went 
There wasn't a lot of talk about it. And I feel like it was unfairly passed over. And it was unfairly passed over by me because I remember hearing about it. I was kind of excited about it. And then it kind of came and went. And I was like, oh, no, it's probably not any good. I never saw it. Finally caught up with it. It was Dr. Sleep. And this was a sequel to The Shining that was directed by Mike Flanagan and actually had the blessing of Stephen King because he wrote the screenplay. It stars uh, Ewan McGregor as the main character and Rebecca Ferguson is the main evil person in it. You may remember Rebecca Ferguson from some of the Mission Impossible films. Um, Ewan McGregor plays Danny Torrance, who was the little boy in The Shining. And I thought this film, and it also goes against kind of a complaint that I've normally used. Um, This film was two and a half hours. Now, were you watching the director's cut um, or was this the actual theatrical? So I don't know exactly because I watched it on um, HBO Max. And so I'm not familiar. They only, you know, whatever version they have is the version I thought. So I think it may be the director's cut, but I'm not, I'm not positive. Um, But I, I really, I really, really liked it. And I am, as I've probably, people can guess if they've heard the podcast before, I'm a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick. And also a huge fan of uh, Stephen King. I know he hates the original Shining, um, but I I love it. Um, it's not. I think one of the biggest problems with the original film is it's not. It, it's not very loyal to the book. It takes a lot of the ideas, but kind of makes it its own movie. It kind of stands alone. Yeah. Doctor Sleep, on the other hand, is pretty loyal to the book, um, which some people may have a problem with that it's such a slave to the book or so you know indebted to the book that. It doesn't, it's not his own thing, but I think it really tells a good story. And I think one of the things that helps is they give it that long running time of two and a half hours, which may have turned off a lot of horror fans that just wanted to go see a quick, scary movie at 90 minutes and they weren't, you know, fans of it. But it really invests in all the characters and really gives you a sense of the story it's going for. Something they do too, which some people may have been turned off by this, but I was kind of impressed by the bravado. Mike Flanagan redoes some of the scenes from The Shining. So in other words, he gets another boy actor to be young Danny Torrance. He gets another um, lady to be the wife and another person to be like the Jack Nicholson character, you know, new actors. But he sets them in what are pretty close, identical costumes and identical, identical shots of the Overlook Hotel. And it, and it works. It worked for me. And I was really surprised that it worked. And at first you're like, huh, I mean, maybe it's legal reasons that they can't use footage from the original Shining or I wonder why they're doing that. But then the more the film goes on, you see that it allows certain things to be revisited from new perspectives. And one of the things that gets to happen, which was amazing for me, um, such like a fanboy moment, but it served the story, was Danny gets to go to the bar at the Overlook Hotel and that scene where he's kind of confronting demons because he, like his father struggles with alcohol. Um, so the scene that takes place there, I'm not going to say any much more about it, but um, it is so good. And by this point, we're already two hours into the movie. So it's not like it happens in the first five minutes. I don't know. I, I really, really like this movie much more. You know, I kind of saw it like, Oh yeah, that came out. I never saw it. Let me, let me check it out. I really liked it. Now, do you need to like Stephen King? Yeah. You do need to have probably seen The Shining to get something out of it. And something that's also I'll say about this film that 
rarely translates, even though I love Stephen King, his movies rarely translate what's on the written page to the screen very well because it's so like mental. And when you see it done on the screen, it looks kind of hokey and silly. I'm thinking of something like it in the book. Mm -hmm. It's very mental and very, you know, you can see it in your head and it's more disturbing or it's more like, it's just, it works better. But when you see it on the screen, it just looks silly. Like, you know, a gigantic mm -hmm. spider or something like that. Like the TV version of it that came out. Mm -hmm. like, oh, it looks stupid. And you're like, yeah, but it worked in the book, you know? Um, right. The stuff that goes on in this film, uh, Rebecca Ferguson plays somebody that basically steals energy or what they call steam in the film from normally younger kids. It's like it steals their life force essence on the page. It works, but you could see like, yeah, it's kind of sounds hokey. And I think that was something that kept me away from wanting to see the film version of it. Cause in the previews, I was like, yeah, that doesn't, that looks kind of stupid. You know, I don't, you know, it made sense in the book, but it looks kind of silly, but no, the way it's done and the way they handle it totally worked. I guess I can credit, uh, Mike Flanagan and you know Stephen King for the original idea and his direction of it. Of course, the acting, but it really worked. So um, that's my recommendation. Obviously, a pretty emphatic one for uh, Doctor Sleep, which you can see oh. on HBO Max. I think you can rent it other places like iTunes, but it may not be like the director's sure. cut that you're mentioning. Well, you did not see the director's cut. It sounds okay. Like. All right. Yeah uh, the the original theatrical cut was 151 minutes. That is an hour, two hours and 30 minutes. So that's the version you saw. Yes. All right. Two hours and 30 minutes. The director's cut adds 24 minutes to wow. it. So it's a, basically a three-hour movie. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Supposedly on HBO Max, you have two choices. You could watch the default one's going to be the theatrical, but you could also watch the director's cut. See, I'm going to have to go back and see. I'll have to go back and see which one because I, I was going off. I cheated. I was going off of IMDb's listing of how long the movie is. All right. Maybe I did see that. I'll, I'll have to go back and well, check it out. Chris, if you watched the three-hour version and you still came away with a positive viewpoint of it, that's pretty impressive, yeah. knowing your inversion to long well, films. True. So, yeah. So, anyway, yeah, I've heard some really good things about Dr. Sleep. Um, that's on my list of one to check out at some point, too. So, absolutely, I'm with you on that. Chris, my recommendation is, uh, it's not really a movie, so I'm cheating a little bit, okay. but if you listen to my earlier soapbox, I did say that we were a little more limited on new content coming out. So, um, take my recommendations where we can right now. I tend to view this as three mini movies. And I think, uh, for that purpose, it works really well. Um, I'm a big fan of improv comedy. I love the idea of improvisational comedy. Um, and I'm also a fan of both of these two actors, comedy actors that have been well-known in different TV shows. Uh, Thomas Middleditch and Ben Schwartz. Ben Schwartz from Parks and Recreation is probably where I know him best. Uh, playing uh, John, uh, oh, what is his name? John, uh, is it John Robbio, maybe? I have not, um, watched a little bit of Parks and Rec, but never made it to when his yeah. character came on, so... Well, so he, he's kind of a supporting character in that show. And then uh, Thomas Middleditch was the lead actor in the HBO series Silicon Valley. Okay. So both very good comedic actors in their own right. They put out, they've actually formed a comedy duo called Middleditch and Schwartz. Very original name, but they're two last names. Sure. On Netflix, they have put out a three episode miniseries of their comedy specials. And here's the idea behind it. 
they do the typical improvisational comedy bit that you do when you go to an improv comedy, which is they ask the audience for a concept for a general starting point story. And it's just the two of them on stage. There's no other actors, nobody else. Okay. But what they do with this so much fun and that they take a small little nugget of a storyline that they get from the audience and they go for about an hour oh, wow. constructing this entire story in cast of characters around this small nugget of an idea. Hmm. So for example, I think the one of the, the second episode, I believe a girl in the audience tells them that, you know, she's uh, studying, she's a law student and she's stressing about her law finals coming up. That little specific nugget spirals into this very complex story about all of these cast of characters. And there's even an alien involved at one point hmm. that's gets involved with the audience and they're improving the entire time and it's just, for this entire look, hour. And it's just the two, just the two okay. of them and they play multiple characters. So they actually will run to other parts of the stage to sit or take the place of where another character was. They remembered had been set up by the other person. Gotcha. So they're playing each other's characters at times. And what makes it so much fun is not only just watching them work, but the fact that they themselves will get confused at times about what characters they were supposed to be playing <laughs> and what the name of a certain character was. And they have to kind of work to help each other remember what, where they are in the story. Hmm. It's so much fun to watch this work. So there's three of these comedy specials they are each about an hour each. Okay. Uh, you watch them independently. You don't have to watch them in any order, but it's the same idea, just a different story they follow. Um, it's not a film. I get it. So I cheated a little bit on the recommendation, but you could watch all three hours. And to me, it's just as entertaining as a full length, very, very long film. Uh, but if you really want to see improv comedy work extremely well on a videotaped film medium like this, uh, I think this is a really, really great show. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Middle Ditch and Swartz on Netflix, the little mini series that you've got to watch. Uh, I think it's a, absolute well worth your time uh, while you're at home. So, yeah. Excellent. So two very different recommendations, Dr. Sleep from Chris, and then we've got Middle Ditch and Swartz from me. Um, Between those two recommendations, Chris, the two reviews we gave for Eurovision Song Contest and The Truth, and even talking about Palm Springs like we did as being an online uh, 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 premiere film. I think there's a lot of options for people to check out as far as some online content uh, over the uh, coming days. So, and I think with that, I think we will get ready to wrap up our show for today. So Chris, as people have thoughts, questions, comments, they want to really rag me about the Hamilton movie or Palm Springs or anything else. Uh, how can they get a hold of us and share their thoughts and opinions? Sure. You, they can send an email to info at footcandle.org or specifically if you wanted to make it to Alan at footcandle.org, you could, if you really want to attack him uh, coming down on Hamilton, you can also. And that's perfectly fine. I invite it. I'm, I'll welcome it. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at footcandlefilm. We're on Letterboxd where we track what we're seeing and sometimes give many reviews um, if you would, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, consider giving us a star rating or write us a review for us in Apple iTunes. It helps us reach new listeners. We'd appreciate that. I would be derelict in my duties if I didn't remind you that the Foot Candle Film Festival is going to go on this year, September 23rd through the 27th. 
this time you do not have to travel um, because of situations with, you know, where health concerns. We want to be sure that we can hold the festival and keep it safe for everybody who wants to watch it. We're actually going to be doing it online. So unfortunately, if we do have any uh, viewers or listeners in Iceland, no, you will not be able to come. It will be will be locked into the United States. But as long as you live in the U.S., you can uh, come to some of the films at footcandlefilmfestival.com. There'll be information there coming soon about the films we'll be screening. So uh, you might want to check it out. Yeah, absolutely. We are excited to still be putting on our festival this year. But as Chris mentioned, a little different format this year with us going online only. Tickets go on sale in late July for that and the the festival in late September. So hope to see you virtually joining us uh, for that uh, festival and the selection of films we'll be unveiling very soon. All right, Chris, well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Foot Candle Films. Hope you enjoyed the content. As always, if you do, please feel free to subscribe with whatever podcatcher of choice you use or recommend us or give us some star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or any other place where you get your podcast. We would appreciate all of that. And until we get together next time, take care. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. See you in the ticket line, maybe as soon as when we get to see Tenet. Watch films in the company of like-minded people in the dark Watch films in the underground We won't let anyone know where you are The films that don't make it to Carmike at the mall Or ones that were famous when Grandpa would watch films Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.